Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome to the Intercooler Podcast. This is episode 74. I'm your host, Dan Prosser, uh, joined as ever by Andrew Frankel. Hello, Andrew. Little wave there. Little Hello. wave. Um, Hello. Now, this is uh, another one of our podcasts about people. We introduced this format a couple of weeks ago um, with Sir Jackie Stewart. Uh, and this time it's about another Formula One world champion, Michael Schumacher. Now, not all of these are going to be about Formula One world champions. Um, in fact, we're going to make sure that they're not because we want to talk about other people. We want to talk about designers and engineers and uh, company executives, all sorts. Um, but this is, just feels like the right time to dedicate an episode of the podcast to Michael Schumacher, doesn't it? Um, do you want yeah. to explain why? Uh, yeah, a couple of reasons. Uh, firstly, it's 30 years since he burst onto the Grand Prix scene um, in 1991. Uh, and secondly, because on September the 15th, I think, there's going to be, um, what I believe is the first um, Schumacher documentary. Um, it's going out, so it's going out on Netflix September the 15th, and it's going to be really, really interesting to see. Um, I just, uh, yeah, I'm really interested to see how that, I mean, this is a documentary that is, so far as I can see, it's basically been done by his family or certainly with the total cooperation of his family. I would say almost certainly in association with his family. So it'll, it'll be very much the view of the man that they want to present. Um, and, you know, we are, uh, uh, we, we are told, if you read the comments coming from the director, she says it's going to be warts and all. It's going to be the ups and downs because Corinna, uh, Michael's wife, doesn't want to just do a sort of sugar-coated um you know totally positive story i think apparently she wants to tell it as it is so uh, who knows we'll see but it's going to be it's going to be really really interesting and uh i think he's i think he is just 
He's like sort of Senna, isn't he? He's just one of the most, whether, you, whether you're a fan or whether you're not a fan, I don't think that anybody could say that he was boring um, as a character, as a driver, in the same way you might, you know, some people could say that, I don't know, Alan Prost um, could be boring in that way. I mean, Michael was always um, caught in controversy. He was always doing amazing things. Uh, I think our sport is massively richer for having had him in it. Um, and it's obviously desperately sad for the last... It's coming up eight years now since he had the accident. Um, and, you know, nobody really knows um, what his current situation is. But, you know, I just think it's terribly sad that, you know, he's obviously had this terrible, terrible time. Um, so, yeah, Michael it is. Yeah, so we're not going to speculate on his condition, mostly because no, we don't God know no. any more than anybody else, nor no, will we no. even talk about the accident. And we're, not but that, we're not that kind of journalist. No, we're not. Um, so by the time this episode of the podcast goes out, an article that you've written for the Intercooler app will have gone live. Um, and it was, I suppose, like this podcast, inspired by this Netflix documentary that's on its way. Um, yeah. And in it, you sort of address your feelings about Michael Schumacher. Um, and probably it will resonate with a lot of people. Certainly did with me. Um, it, it, particularly during his career, he wasn't the easiest character to like, was he, necessarily? No, he wasn't at all. Um, I mean, I've, you know, I, I, I've, I've gone up and down a bit with Lewis. I, you know, there have been times when I haven't been a Lewis-type fan, um, and there are times when I've been a huge Lewis fan. I'm a pretty big Lewis fan at the moment. I'm not quite as big a Lewis fan as I have been. I think last year I was in the, last year I was like <laughs> Lewis, you know, super uber fanboy. This year, not but uh, with, with Michael, I was just all over the place. You know, when he was in the Benetton, you know, driving Damon off the road to deny him a world championship in '94. I mean, I just loathed the bloke. Um, but then. Uh, he went and joined Ferrari. Uh, and as I, as I think I've spoken about this podcast before, um, you know, I can judge Ferrari road cars completely objectively. I can treat them like anything else. But, I, I, you know, cut me and I bleed Scuderia Ferrari. I just do. The race team, I just want Ferraris to win. And I, I, I just don't understand. I've never really understood why that is. But, uh, okay, we're recording this before uh, before Sunday, before Spa on Sunday. Um, but whatever happens or happened as you're listening to this um Last Sunday, I just want a Ferrari to win. It's awful, isn't it? Um, <laughs> well, and so when, but the point being is that when Michael joined Ferrari in '96, suddenly I kind of had to like him because he was driving from a team, and then he started doing ridiculous things in those in in, in the first Ferraris that he drove, which are terrible cars. Um, and I just suddenly thought, oh, okay, so this guy really is. Um, <laughs> really is that good uh, and it kind of well I'm sure we'll get into it but it kind of sort of blossomed from there um, and I'm now a huge fan I'm a huge huge fan um, uh, I'm not blind at all I'm not blind at all to you know all the stuff that he did um, and I think that he damaged his reputation I think that there will always be um, you know he's never going to be a golden boy of the sports is he um, he's not he's never going to be a bloke who could do no wrong because he did a lot of wrong um but also you know to an extent isn't that now i'm not excusing it at all but you know Ayrton was the same actually in many ways i think what you know particularly what senna did to prost um uh at suzuka wasn't it um to win a world championship i mean i think that was even more machiavellian than anything that michael ever did 
Um, and, you know, to an extent, you can't forgive this. Well, you can forgive this stuff. You can't forget it, but you can try to understand it. And these people do become more human as a result. Um, yeah, well, I, I, I've sort of felt the same. We'll, we'll get into it a little bit later on. But, yeah, I wasn't keen on the guy when he was active. But with a bit of time, with a bit of distance, you start recognising everything that he achieved. And you just think, wow. Um, so... Okay, so let's just uh, run through his Formula 1 career. 308 Grand Prix, a lot. 91 wins, 68 poles, uh, and 7 titles. And most of those were records until Lewis Hamilton came along and Mercedes came along and just started nicking all of Schumacher's records. Um, let's go back a bit further and talk can I, about... Can I, say, can I say one thing on that? Okay. Go on. Um, and I'm not in any way denigrating Lewis, um at all but i think i'm right in saying is that lewis has never been in anything other than this the first or second best car on the grid is that fair to say um i think the 2009 mclaren was a bit of a shocker okay okay a season you know michael 1996, 1997, 1998, three seasons with Ferrari. Okay, 1999, the car was good. He didn't win the championship of the year, but the car was good. Um, you know, but he chose to go to Ferrari in 1996 when Ferrari was an absolute basket case. You know, it couldn't get out of its own way. You know, from 1991 to 1995, Ferrari was in, you know, basically the worst it had ever been. And so Michael decided to go there and go for a completely uncompetitive team. When he came back with Mercedes, you know, we forget the Mercedes was very much a kind of middle order team then. So, you know, Lewis has done amazing stuff and everything else, but you have to see it in the context of the equipment that they had. And if Michael had had the consistency of brilliant co- commitment of, of equipment through his career that Lewis has enjoyed, I don't think Lewis would be where Michael is, would even have got to where Michael would have got to had he had that. <laughs> well, that was a big statement. Uh, you'd have to look, look through some data wouldn't you to, to really back that up but I, th- I don't yeah. know I, and, he also, I, I, and he also took what was it three years out in the middle of his career yeah he did um, what do Seven, I think eight, about that nine, he was out wasn't he yeah so I think um, I think Lewis did join Mercedes when it was a, a proper mid-pack team but then of course there was a feeling wasn't there that from 2014 that would be the team to be at and so it transpired um, Anyway, we can, we can come back to this um, because I just want to talk about his pre-F1 days. Uh, I don't know how familiar you are with his very early career. Um, but in well, 19- he just won everything, didn't he? He, he yeah. was karting. I think he was karting when he was four. <laughs> okay, we're not going back quite that far. Um, <laughs> I, we're only going back to 1990 when he won the German F3 Championship. Um, and that year he was Billy also... Weber. Yeah. And he, that year he was also racing with Sauber Mercedes in the World Sports Car Championship, which... That was an interesting move, wasn't it? I mean, clearly this guy was on his way towards Formula One, um, but he was advised that, that, to go... That, that was, yeah, that was, sorry, go on. He was advised to go and do some endurance racing because it's a different type of car. Um, it's working with teammates. Um, he was part of the young driver squad, wasn't he? Um, and he was just advised that everything that he would experience in that sort of environment would ultimately make him a better racing driver. Yeah, and I think it was also about being, you know, out of the car. It was a much, you know, because most people obviously went from Formula 3 to Formula 3000 into Formula 1 that way. Um, but I think Vili Weber identified that, you know, if you're going to become a fully rounded Formula 1 driver, um, you know, you need to have 
played on the biggest stages um, with really big team, proper works manufacturer team, you know, like Mercedes-Benz, and go and do races like Le Mans. It's a little known fact. It's another one of my weird Le Mans spotty stats. Fastest lap of, at Le Mans in 1991, M. Schumacher Esquire. Mm. Nobody thinks about that. Nobody thinks yeah. about Michael as being a Le Mans driver as well, at all. Um, but yeah, he was there. Fastest lap of the race. Finished fifth. Fifth. Oh, there you go. Decent yeah. result, isn't it? Um, he won in 1990 and 1991. Him and his, his co-drivers, if you like, won a couple of races. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, that's a, it's really interesting to just speculate and ponder how much that helped his career, driving a very different type of car, different environment, different type of racing, working with teammates. Um, yeah, maybe we should see more of these younger guys doing that sort of thing. Um, but in, but also, was, obviously, it established the Mercedes connection, didn't it? Well, quite, yeah, it did, which came back around a good couple of decades later. Um, yeah, it was in 1990 as well that he won the Macau GP, um, which really is where future F1 world champions announced themselves, isn't it? Uh, or it was back didn't in the day. Something, didn't yes. something... Yes. <laughs> it did. That was like the first sign of it, that he would yeah. kind of do... Anything it took a little to bit win. Above, above and beyond to, to, to get what he wanted. Yeah, was very he, controversial did, circumstances. Can you remember who he is racing? A sign of things to come? Oh, okay. Yeah, so I am right. I thought it was Mick. I thought it can't be Mick. It must have been Mick mm. then. It was yeah, Mick. So it was Hacken. Hack Didn't he take him out or something? He did something. So, it was a, a slightly unusual format for the race. It, it, this was the second heat. Um, and because Hakkinen had won the first one, Hakkinen actually only had to follow Schumacher over the line within three seconds uh, to win the Macau GP. Um, so Michael so, actually had to make sure that Hakkinen didn't finish at all. <laughs> yes. So the two of them are way out in, in front. They're coming down a long straight. And the clip, the footage is on YouTube. You'll find it easily. Uh, they're coming down the long straight. And it's interesting. Hakkinen knows he only has to follow him over the line. But he clearly wants to get through. And so they're coming down a long straight. Hakkinen goes to make the move. Schumacher swerves right, you know, subtly, um, not really aggressively, but it causes, um, and perhaps it's a black and white thing, okay? It's not a black and white thing. There are, it's, there are shades of grey, so you can't necessarily apportion blame to one of the drivers. But what happens is uh, Hakkinen goes to make the move, drives into the back of Schumacher's car for whatever reason, loses his, um, well, he, he crashes into the wall out of the race. Schumacher loses his rear wing, but is able to continue and goes on to win the Macau GP. But the point is, he Without did a rear wing. very, well, yeah, but in very controversial circumstances. I mean, it really was a sign of things to come. Here is a ruthless competitor who will do what it takes to beat the opposition. And... So I mean, I, well, it wasn't I, I have seen it. No, if I have seen that, it was years and years and years ago. So if you're looking at it, was this kind of like a sort of Max Lewis cops 50-50, you could argue it both ways, or did Michael just take him out? Uh, you can argue, argue it both ways. And there is a quote from Hakkinen basically blaming himself because... Uh, he certainly doesn't, I should never have tried to overtake him. Yeah, and he certainly doesn't blame Schumacher um, entirely. So... It's, just, it's one of those. It's one of those where you can debate it Very forever. Very interesting. Um, so it's just fascinating that even back then, there was this, this little sign of, you know, something about this guy, Michael Schumacher. Um, yeah. 
But anyway, all this stuff that he did in 90 and 91, it ultimately landed him um, a shot uh, in a Formula One car with Jordan at Spa. Um, have you, yeah, do you remember the story? Bertrand Gachot. And do you know what? He is the guest on this week's or last week's F1 Beyond the Grid podcast. And he explains oh, wow. in detail the incident that got him locked up. So did he, he maced a London taxi driver, didn't he? It was, yeah, tear gas. Because tear apparently gas. in Paris, you can, it's not a weapon. In France, it's not, it wasn't a weapon. But here it, it counts as a weapon. Um, and, so, as a, and a dangerous weapon. So he got banged up for it. He did several months in the nick. Um, yeah, but he still <laughs> let off of presumably a canister of tear gas in a London taxi. Or as yeah. a London taxi driver. Yeah, he did. I mean... I mean, did well. I mean, it's, it's probably not for this podcast, but yeah. But as yeah, as as a result of that, he was he was at Her Majesty's pleasure um, mm. when he should have been at Spa, rather indisposed. Yeah, yes, it's true. And so they, Eddie Jordan, found this uh, <laughs> this promising young racing driver. I mean, some people say that he was an unknown. He clearly wasn't. If he was a German F three champion. You would think with those credentials, the likelihood is that you would do some Formula One at some stage. Yeah. Um, but I think he got the drive because Billy Weber told Eddie that Michael, you know, loved Spa and was great around Spa yeah. and, you know, he'd be perfect. He'd never been there. <laughs> yeah. He'd never lie. been there. And, and his, his teammate, who was De Cesaris, um, was going to sort of show him round, but for some reason didn't. And so I think Michael learnt Spa on a Brompton fold-up bicycle. That's an and effort so getting time, up Eau Rouge, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I just think, well, yeah, but Michael was always the fittest bloke in Formula 1, wasn't he? True. Um, and, yeah, so I, th- I think that's what happened. And he qualified, he out-qualified De Cesaris, didn't he? Who'd been mm. around in Formula 1 for, like, forever. Mm. Um, and Michael turns up having never been to this track before it's amazing isn't it given how close if you think you grew up in Kirpin which isn't far from the Nürburgring sort of Cologne way so it's only an hour and a half from Spa has he really never been in mm. all the racing that he did never but anyway that, that, that is as, I, as I've been told at least um, yeah and he get, you know, qualifying he goes and blows his teammate into the weeds um, and then I think the clutch goes on the line and so that's the end of that isn't it in the Beyond the Grid podcast, there's a, a line from Gasho. He says, I think he received a letter from De Cesaris saying, don't worry about the German. He beat me in qualifying here, but I'll get him next time or something. <laughs> no, <laughs> I'm yeah, not well, sure you would, mate. <laughs> well, there, well, 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 there wasn't a next time, was there? There wasn't was a next the time, no. So, I mean, technically, before, if, it, before we get if into he blew it, it up you, on the line, you know, technically he didn't actually race for Jordan, did he? I'm not sure. He meant, well, maybe he went a few yards or something. Yeah, there you go. So he retired very early on, didn't he? But do you, so, do you remember watching qualifying that year? Do no. you remember thinking you don't? Okay, no, no, I don't. So, I'm sorry. No, I, I, I don't. I wish I'd, I'd, I'd been that prescient. Uh, I'm not even sure I remember um, watching it. I did, I'm just trying to think when I did log on to Michael. Don't know. He just kind of. I think it was when he started to. You know, consistently put in results because he had a really good result in his next race. I'm trying to remember yeah. where it was. So he'd been he'd been nicked by was it, Benetton. Was it Monza? It was the Italian GP. Yeah, yeah. So that's right. So he got nicked by Flav. Um, <laughs> Eddie got very hot under the collar. Tried Furious, to sue Flav. Sure. 
yeah. lost. Um, so Michael went, but he lost because the agreement was all there, but somebody hadn't signed it, so it wasn't so it wasn't binding. So Michael goes to Benetton, and in his second race, he comes fifth, doesn't he? Um, and yeah, I mean, amazing. And he, well, his teammate as well. Oh, bleh, Nelson Piquet. Mm. Yes. So triple world triple champion. world champion, Nelson Piquet. Yeah, and Schumacher beats him in his second. He out qualified him as well. Yeah. Out qualified him and out raced him because I think Piquet came behind him, well, you know, sixth or something or whatever. Yeah, but definitely out qualified and out raced a triple world champion in the same car in his second race. That should have told you something, shouldn't it? He's arrived, isn't he? <laughs> He's arrived. Um, now, PK would have been past his best by then. I mean, PK was. This was ninety-one. This was like ten years after his first title. But even so, you know, he was he he, he was not some tugger. He was a uh, you know, well, mm. yeah, triple champion. Yeah, good effort. <laughs> so Schumacher with Benetton became a race winner at Spa in nineteen ninety-two. Didn't take long, did it? Um, and then he, he won his. Spa, he he always yeah. said it was his favourite circuit. You can see why. I mean, what a special place that is, even now. Um, and, of course, Schumacher, as we know, he won his first title in 1994. Do, do you want to briefly explain the circumstances? Well, I mean, he had, obviously, 1994 was the year that uh, the sport lost, well, not just Ayrton, but um, Roland Ratzenberger at Imola in May. Um, and Michael, by this stage, was in the Benetton with the Ford V8 in the back, which wasn't the most powerful engine out there, but the car handled extremely well. Um, and obviously, that was the year of the um, driver aids scandal. I don't think it's too strong a word to use. And I think what people forget is that Benetton were by no means the only team who were, A, investigated for having dodgy software, and B, found to have had dodgy software. Can't remember the other teams, but there were plenty of them. Um, I think the reason that Benetton got particularly hauled over the coals for it was because I think they had, in addition to everything else, they had traction control system on their car. Um, and, you know, and for people like me, who were such, you know, who idolised Ayrton, the idea that he died trying to keep up with somebody driving a bent car was really quite hard to take. Um, now, everybody got away with it. Well, no, I think, well, certainly Benetton got away with it because although nobody disputes that all this stuff... Do you remember there was a, there was a, a screen, I think it was on the steering wheel, which had various options, all of which were fine, option one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. And those were all the options. Unless you pressed the down button a few more times and there was no option 11 and there was no option 12. And then suddenly, off the bottom of your screen, there was option 13. And that was this, I, believe, I seem to remember, that was this traction control thing. Um, and the only reason they got away with it, no one denied it was on the car, but they couldn't demonstrate that it had been used. And the rules said, did not say it was illegal to have it. The rules said it was illegal to use it. Uh, and again, it, it was just another one of those, how many times in the history of motor racing um, have has really bad stuff been allowed to happen because some idiot didn't draft the rules and didn't actually think. You know, if you're going to sit there drafting rules, you must know that 
the moment you, these things are published, A, they're set in the stone, and B, that every engineer and every team on every grid that's going to race is going to be all over them like a rash. And these are some of the most intelligent people you know, in, in the world who are employed because they've got brains the size of Bournemouth. And they're just going to look at it from every angle and keep looking and keep looking until they find a way around it. So you think you would... I mean, to me, that's a really basic thing. You know, you, well, you, you know it's absolutely fine. Help this out. You have as much of this stuff on your cards that you like. Just don't use it. I mean, yeah. anyway. And the, these teams, so, they even get lawyers to look through these regulations to, to, yeah. with a lawyer's eye, look for the loopholes. And yeah. they will find them. If they're there, they will find them. And anyway, it all comes down to, um, to Australia, doesn't it? The last race of the year, uh, which back then would have been Adelaide, I guess. Um, and... You know, Damon was coming, Damon was coming. And so, um, and Michael realized, and Michael was leading, that's right, Michael was leading the race and he binned it. And he knew his race was over. And he knew, therefore, that his championship was over because Damon was just about to overtake him. And then that would be it. Be the, so he literally, as, you know, in the latter part of his crash, he just thought, well, I'll take him with me. And he did. And he just drove into Damon. Um, quite intentionally. I have to say, quite intentionally. And, I, and, um, you know, I think of all the stuff that he did in his career, I think that was probably his lowest moment. I mean, there have been others, uh, which maybe we'll get to. Um, but I mean, certainly for me at the time, I just thought that was particularly given, obviously, you know, we're all Damon fans because he was British and everything, but also, you know, I, I think actually it was because he was Ayrton's teammate. And you know, it would have been, you know, in the same way that, I don't know, that, you know, Graham Hill picked Lotus up off the ground in 1968 when Jim Clark got killed and won the championship that year. Um, it would have been so good if Damon had been able to do, you know, Graham's son, Damon had been able to do the same thing for Williams in 94. But because of Michael's choice in the last race of the year to take out Damon and win his first world championship in that manner. That never happened. Um, and if you'd said to me at that moment, one day you'll become a real Michael Schumacher fan, I would have either thumped you or just, you know, laughed you out of the room. Um, but yeah. there you go. It's quite a journey, isn't it? I, I suspect, I was yeah. too young, I don't remember this, but I suspect if you were an Ayrton fan or a Damon fan or a Williams fan, it would have been an inexcusable, unforgivable act. And probably decades later... I'd, you'd be justified in still not liking Michael Schumacher, wouldn't you? Because of that, I one bet thing. he regrets it. I bet you. I, I may be wrong about this. Maybe someone can tell us. But I think at su- did has he not? Did he not at some stage say that he, if he'd had his time again, he'd have done things differently in that race? Yeah, I think so. I'm not sure about that. Um, but yeah, I'm sure he regrets it. He must do. He couldn't not. Particularly given all, all you know, everything else that he he went on to achieve, but he you know, he didn't know that at the time. I mean, at the time, he was the young hotshot. He'd never won a world championship, and he knew that's what he had to do. I mean, the thing what I would say about that is, however terrible it was, and it was awful, and it was inexcusable, and maybe not unforgivable, but not far off. I do at the same time. I do understand it. I do understand. You know as much as I could, having never been in a remotely similar situation myself, just thinking, this is all I have ever worked for. This is all I've ever fought for. This is the culmination 
of my career and I'm about to see it just go up in smoke I can't let that happen and then in that moment of madness you just do something you just do what you have to do and you don't think hard enough about yeah I'm so I'm not in any way excusing it but yeah I do understand the the thought process this is why Michael Schumacher is a good subject for this episode so this podcast because he's he's not just um a golden boy he's not just it's not all sunshine and rainbows is it it's there is an edge to his character and and i just i just i mean it says something that a person could take any satisfaction whatsoever from winning a championship that way um i think i'd be desperately trying to if i if i had that moment of madness and won the championship because of it i'd be desperately trying to get myself disqualified from the race whatever it took um i just i just can't imagine that at, at the end of the day when you've celebrated and partied and you put your head back on your pillow surely there'll be something going didn't do it in the right way though um, and, and maybe there was i mean i think there probably would be i mean i can remember a particularly difficult moment when I think it was in a press conference after the race he dedicated his championship to to Senna. And I suspect he did that for the right reasons. But having been the bloke who nicked that championship from Senna's teammate, I thought that was inelegant. Um, and I just, just thought that, you know, there might have been a time and a place for that, but it wasn't just... Anyway, but... Okay, well, let's, let's move on to some of the rosier aspects of Michael Schumacher and his career. So he, he won the yeah. championship again the next year. So he's a yep. two-time world champion. Gets snapped yeah, that up was a by... much easier championship because he had a Renault engine in the back. Um, so he suddenly had, you know, he had the best ch- chassis and he had the best um, engine, and and he was Michael Schumacher. So that's not a bad combination, is it? So <laughs> n- no great surprises that he won it that year. I mean, he, he, I think he walked it, didn't he? Yeah, um, and that was enough to get him snapped up by Ferrari. Um, and uh, it, as you say, Ferrari was a basket case when he went there. Um, but it was clearly a long-term project, wasn't it? Because that was when um, Todd Braun, was it Rory Byrne as well? Um, yeah, Todd Braun. And, Sh- yeah. and Schumacher all came together. And they yeah. just they started building the team around Michael. Um, and the, ultimately, the tyres, uh, it was Bridgestone, wasn't it, who, who they worked with? Um, and they just, it took a few years, but they came to dominate the sport. But even so... Um, there were signs very early on, weren't there? And I think you've said in the past that Michael Schumacher's best ever race came um, Spain. at the Spanish Grand Prix in 1996. Yeah. So this was... So you have to remember... So the Ferrari F310 um, was... a re- It was a really, really bad car. Um, it was... It didn't have much downforce, uh, and the downforce that it did have was a bit all over the place. It was aerodynamically... Um, not very stable um, at all and you know it it, it wasn't within a million miles um, of the Williamses um, and you know Michael was so unsure of the car in, in, in practice that he tried two completely diametrically opposed setups and, and neither of them was working um, he somehow through some totally insane lap managed to qualify at third on the grid I mean, Eddie Irvine was back in sixth or seventh. Um, but then come race day, it rained. And it was, I mean, it's worth going onto YouTube. It really is because it's, well, all of it's there, but a lot of it's there. But I can remember watching this thing live and just thinking, you know, there were times when he was, 
you know, in this difficult car, um, three, four seconds of that quicker than anybody else on the circuit. And you don't need me to tell you who, you know, who else was out there that day. And there were cars pinging off the front and center. And he just made them look idiotic. You, know, you could actually, it's one of those very rare occasions is you could actually see with your eyes, you didn't have to look at a timing screen or anything, that there was one car driving around that track at a completely different speed to all the others. Um, and he wasn't doing it through being, you know, proselyte and Captain Precision and Bowser. He was driving it like a Mark II Escort at times. I mean, he was it, was, it was just like he was having the best time in the world. It was just, it was so free-spirited and so wonderful. Um, and the absolutely staggering thing is that he lapped the, he finished the race, I think, like three quarters of a minute ahead of any the, anybody else. He lapped the entire field up to third place. And yet he did it for at least half the race with a really, really sick engine. To the extent that for the last, whatever it was, 20, 30 laps, he backed off completely because he thought this thing's not going to get there if I continue to wring its neck. So if the car had stayed healthy, I mean, he'd have finished days ahead of anybody else in a rubbish car um, in the most impossible conditions. He just made everybody else out there just look like they were in a different race. It was it was amazing. I was actually I might see if I can dig it out. There was a quote from some. There was hang on. Okay, so somebody said afterwards that was not a race. That was a demonstration of brilliance. The man is in a class of his own. There is no one in the world anywhere near him. I do not think there has ever been a driver who is so far clear of the field in terms of his ability. It was one of the most fantastic demonstrations of skill I have ever seen up there with Senna and Fangio. And that wasn't his manager saying that or his PR person. That was Sterling Moss. (laughs) That's special. So that gives you an idea of what went Mm. on um, in Spain that day. Mm, That is extraordinary. With a pig of a car as well. Um, so I, I we'll skip forward a little bit. And we, we know that he won his third title in 2000 and then every one until 2004. Just utterly dominant at times. Um, peerless. Uh, class of the field. Um, so he, he set all these incredible records. Um, and what, So what was he known for? I mean, he set new standards for um, health and nutrition and fitness for Grand Prix drivers. He was known for being a rain master. Um, he was known for his pace over one lap, but also his pace over a stint, qualifying laps for 20 laps at a time. Um, so really, he's, he's one of these... Do you know what? I often think that all this talk about the GOAT, the greatest of all time, we can never know. I think all we can do is actually recognise the handful of drivers who truly raised the bar, who really set new standards for for people who do what they do and there is no question that in many ways Schumacher was one of those guys he belongs to that elite um he did and also I think the other thing I think so I was good his another great contribution um which we are enjoying to this day I don't think Sebastian Vettel would be in Formula One without Michael Schumacher Formula One was you know before Michael um there had been so few German racing drivers. Um, 
you know, um, Wolfgang von Trips um, was clearly very good, but he was around in the late 50s and early 60s. Um, you know, Jochen Mass. But, you know, it was a kind of like a, a niche sport in Germany. And then Michael came came along and he was an absolute bloody superstar. And, and obviously, and then Ralph came along too. And, um, you know, Ralph wasn't slow either. Um, and I think that he established in his country, he put Formula One on the map. Um, and, you know, and I, th- I think Seb has said that he was certainly um, inspired um, by Michael. And yeah, I mean, who knows? So I think, I think you know, people probably don't think about that too much. But um, yeah, it's, worth considering. It's a, it's a good point. Um, let's just rattle through some of the other controversies. And of course, there were plenty. But Hareth 97 was fairly heinous. Again, that's on YouTube. You can see... Yeah. He, you can see um, Jacques Villeneuve overtakes him and Michael, there's no two ways about it. He drives into Villeneuve trying, it would seem, to end his race so that he won the championship. Um, I, and I Martin once, Brundle I, in commentary says, you hit him in the wrong place, mate, or son, or something, doesn't he? Um, it's really interesting. Oh, I, need to go and, I need to go and look. I did, uh, Patrick Head once showed me around um, the Williams collection, all their cars that they've got stacked up on racks from all the years and it, and Jack's car is there and it's still got Michael's tire mark down the side pot on it wow. um, from where it absolutely hit him in the wrong place that's a bit yeah. of history isn't it yeah. um, and then there was Monaco 2006 with Ferrari when he's, he's not the dominant force anymore um, and Alonso won the previous year with um, Renault and he's I think leading the championship again at this point Alonso and so Michael, uh, in qualifying, he stops at Raskas. Uh, the, the net result and the point being, being is that Michael, Michael was on provisional pole, but Fernando was out there going faster. And if Michael didn't do something prompt, promptly, um, you know, Alonso was going to get pole. So he just thought, well, I'll just park the car here. I mean, the, it's just... <laughs> the other one and that's the thing worse. is, I, I, and what I struggle with, I guess, is, you know, this is not just some young hotshot anymore. Seven-time world champion at that point. It's a seven-time world champion behaving like that. And I just, I just, you know, he must have just thought, actually, I'm better than that. I just shouldn't have done it. Um, so. And also, you know, I, did, I think I, I think they tried to defend it and say, "Oh no, we had a technical problem, this, that, and the other." And it was ju- it was just so blatant, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I just wonder if he's got a temper, and the red mist comes down, and he he responds in an almost childlike way, and then surely, surely, immediately after, he just thinks, "Oh no," I just, I, I just can't believe that it's that he it's, it, it's justifies it to like himself that. in it, any way. Yeah, it's something like that because, yeah, I mean, you know, well, um, he was, as we know, away from the track, a completely different person. Let's come on to that in just a sec, because the only other one that I I think we should mention is the 2010 Hungarian Grand Prix. Michael Schumacher is back after a few years out. He's with Mercedes. Um, And Rubens Barrichello, teammates for a long time, um, is attempting to pass Schumacher down the inside on the main straight. And Schumacher closes the line really suddenly, really aggressively, and almost puts Barrichello into the wall at the best part of 200 miles an hour. Um, it was a genuinely dangerous move, and nothing, thank God, came of it. But, bah. Um, I mean, I know that Rubens was really, really unhappy about it. Um, nothing happened. I mean, okay, Michael would say, Michael did say, 
I gave him space. <laughs> yeah, technically he did. <laughs> you know, and in another world, I mean, how different is that to, I don't know, Lewis and Max and the conversations we had about, you know, who should have given who space there? I mean, I guess it was the context. Was it? it was because they were going so fast and he was absolutely up, up against you know, a solid barrier, I guess, um, and the sort of thoughts of what could have gone wrong if you'd hit that. But, yeah, I mean, I, I, I know exactly the the event that you're talking about. And, you know, I, I think I think you're right. I think it was far too aggressive. But Michael Wood always said there was space. You know, this was hard driving. What do you expect from me? I'm Michael Schumacher. Of course, you know, I'm going to leave you as little room as humanly possible. But I will leave you room. And if you're good enough, you'll get through it. Ruthless competitor. So th- this was during his comeback with Mercedes. He did three years, didn't he? With a largely uncompetitive Merck. Although he did put it on pole at Monaco in 2012. The gutting thing is, he had a penalty from the previous ra- race, I think. So he didn't get to start from pole. Which is a shame because he starting from pole in Monaco, no matter, even if you've got a midfield car, you've got a bloody good chance of winning the thing, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. and, and what really saddens me about that time in his life is that um i remember, I remember sterling came back and said oh i think he's um he's a bit past it now because he wasn't doing very well um and three seasons away how do you come back from that uh and so on and so on um and i think at the time i think we all probably thought oh well you know the old boys you know not quite got his edge anymore and what we didn't know at the time was that he was regularly and i need to go and look at them but i think he basically he outdrove his teammate um for the majority of those seasons and that teammate was that formula one world champion the person who would go on to become a formula one world championship known as nico rosberg i thought nico had got the better of him oh you might be right i think he did maybe it was closer maybe michael was closer than um some of us suspected but i think overall nico beat him okay then i take all that back but okay maybe but even so you know i think that what i would say is regardless of that is that michael wasn't as bad then as i think people i think don't think people realized just how uncompetitive that mercedes was at the time Uh, and i think particularly now that mercedes basically wins everything uh it's hard to imagine a time when they were real you know the real sort of you know also rans middle middle order runners um but they absolutely were at the time um, can you, just while I'm searching something, can you fill for a moment and discuss, um, there was a lovely quote from somebody in the article that you wrote for the Intercooler app, um, describing people who actually knew Michael. Okay. There were lots of people yeah. who didn't like the, the racing driver, but people who actually knew him. Well, okay. So this, the bloke you're talking about is a chap called, um, Robin Grant, uh, who used to run the fabrication shop at Benetton, um, and knew Michael extremely well. And when I first got to know Robin and knew, found out what he did for a living and so on and so forth, I said to him, you know, what is Michael like? Um, and I can't remember the exact quote, but it was along the lines of, you will find loads of people who don't like Michael. They will be um, rivals who are much slower than him, teammates who just can't keep up with him, that sort of thing. And then he said, he paused, he said, but what you will never find is somebody who knows Michael the person rather than Michael the driver who dislikes him. They all absolutely adored the bloke. I mean, professionally speaking, he was the hardest, bloke in, hardest working bloke in Formula One. Um, 
you know, he would turn up first, he would leave last. Uh, the mechanics all adored him because, you know, he was never aloof with them. He worked so hard. And, you know, that's how he managed to build. I mean, he built teams around him because he was such an amazing driver, but also because he was part of the team. It wasn't like the team was working, working, working for this superstar who was kind of up there and, you know, sometimes dane to say hello he was absolutely part of the team and they all idolized him because he was this incredible driver who was making their work so worthwhile um and then so after robin had said that to me and just sort of idly every time i ever met anyone who knew michael um i would just you know ask them the question and today it has always stood up i've never met anyone who knew michael as a person rather than Michael as a driver, um, who didn't like him. So, you know, that's... Well, I think it probably does. Um, But, you know, they're just so different. I mean, I'm not going to bang on about it, but that time I met Senna and spent a day with him, um, the moment the pressure was off, the moment he was away from the media, the moment there weren't people sticking microphones, the moment it was just the two of us alone in the car, he he just became a different person. And he just became this really funny chatty interesting interested bloke i never met michael i haven't met michael um so i don't know if he's the same but i suspect he probably is and that is certainly what um those who you know the people i've spoken to who do know him say about him um so yeah it's very interesting um just so we've got it right on the record uh rosberg did beat him all three seasons but in 2011 it was very close just a few points between them um but there we go that's michael schumacher what a fascinating character um enormous achievements controversial throughout his career but yeah a really good topic for this podcast i think and as ever of course we wish him and his family all the best um and we're absolutely we're very much looking forward to this documentary aren't we hoping it's a a true reflection of just a fascinating person and also one last thing he's still well, according to Wikipedia, that well-known authority, which I just, just looked out of my other computer just now while you were saying that, he still, with Sebastian, ties for the greatest number of races ever won in a season, which is 13. And I think he's still got the greatest number of fastest laps that anybody's ever had. So Lewis hasn't got them all yet. <laughs> Work to do, Lewis. Work to He'll do. get them, um, no doubt. But, um, you know, it, it, he hasn't been entirely eclipsed by Lewis yet. Okay. Good. All right. Well, let's leave that one there. Thank you, everybody, for listening. I enjoyed that. Th- thought that was good. We'll, we'll do some more of these. Yep. Um, and, yeah, give us some suggestions, some people you'd like us to talk about. They don't have to be world Definitely. champions either. Um, no. They don't have please. to be racing drivers. They don't have no. to be drivers. No, no they don't. They don't Anyone. To, it doesn't have to be come from, you know, the race industry. It can come from the road car side, well, whatever. Just, you know, but they've got to be interesting. They've got to be interesting. And not That's just all. interesting for their work, but interesting for their personalities, too. Quite right. Uh, okay, well, please, everybody, remember to rate and review the podcast. That really does help. And also remember to go and download the Intercooler app. Start your free trial. Um, you get a month to decide if you like it or not. We think you will. There's some great stuff up there. So go and download the app. And as, a, as ever, we'll be back to talk to you all again next week. Look forward to it. Thanks all.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.